I watched with interest the construction of the One World Trade Center Tower in our inevitable times in traffic on the New Jersey Turnpike. I used to look out the car window and point it out to the children. I would say, look kids, the construction workers have now reached the top floor of the new One World Trade Center Tower. Or several months later, look children, the glass windows have now all been installed on the exterior of the building. I was so excited about it. But I realized after some time that the kids were way less interested than I was. And if I thought about it, I realized that children, they think very concretely. It's hard for them to think in the abstract. And the Manhattan skyline from a distance was probably no more interesting to them than the cities they build out of wooden blocks on the living room floor. They had no understanding of the scope or the scale of a building like the One World Trade Center. So two summers ago, Nancy and I took them into lower Manhattan. I know a number of you have been there to go see that tower face to face. I remember the day really well. I remember walking up onto those beautiful grounds that they've constructed now and just standing before that building. I looked down at the children's faces as their eyes grew wide and it all made sense to them why daddy was so excited about this construction of this building. That building face to face when you behold it is majestic, it's awe-inspiring. And then, of course, the funnest part was when I pulled out of my pocket the tickets to the elevator ride. And we got to go all the way up to the observation deck on top of the One World Trade Center. And from there, all the other buildings that we could see from afar, well, they were all now put into perspective. Suddenly, you realize just how grand, just how supreme the One World Trade Center Tower is. You couldn't know that from afar. You know, some of us have a view of Jesus from afar. Like viewing the Manhattan skyline from the car window of the New Jersey Turnpike, we see Jesus, we see him out there. Maybe he's a little bit taller than the other figures in history. But the book of Hebrews, well, it's a little bit like an elevator ride up into the majesty and supremacy of Jesus. When we see him for who he truly is, just like looking out that observation deck, we will suddenly begin to see all the other figures in history put in their perspective. We're going to be studying the book of Hebrews over the next five Sundays. And each chapter shows us just how grand our Lord really is. If you want to dive more deeply into the material, we have some resources available in the rotunda and in the bookstore. For today, though, we're going to look at just chapter one, where we begin to see, we begin to climb up into the majesty of Jesus. And we see something amazing in Hebrews chapter one. How about this for an opening chapter of your book of the Bible? We see that the Son of God is actually God. The Son of God is actually God. He's not just a teacher who taught us some nice things like love your enemy and turn the other cheek. He's not even just an angel. He's not just another prophet sent by God. He's actually 
God. Let's read about it in the first three verses. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow! That's a description of Jesus. Now, we could actually spend the next five Sundays just on those three verses if we wanted to. There are so many statements about Jesus that we could unpack and study. But there's one this morning I want us to think about. One profound, amazing phrase, a description of Jesus. Picture this, it says, He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let's go back into New York City for a minute to help us understand this. You know on 6th Avenue by Rockefeller Plaza, there's that great big statue of Atlas. You've seen it, haven't you? It was installed in 1937. It's made out of bronze. It's Atlas, and he's got that great big globe on his shoulders. The whole structure is 45 feet tall, and it's pretty impressive right there on that avenue. And he's kind of struggling a little bit. He's under the weight of the world. If you study Greek mythology, you realize that Atlas was subjected to hold up the skies for all of eternity. It was a punishment he was given because he lost some battle in the heavenlies. That's why Atlas is holding up the world in that way. Well, did you also know something very interesting? One of my favorite details of New York City. Right across the street from that statue of Atlas, you know it, don't you? St. Patrick's Church. If you walk into St. Patrick's, there are many depictions of Jesus. He's on the stained glass windows. He's in those naves. There are statues of him with Mary. But there's one statue of Jesus that I think is in conversation with the statue of Atlas across the street. There's a tiny little statue of Jesus. He's a baby in this statue, just a little guy. And he's very casual, and he's got something in his hands that he's looking at. It's the whole world. There's our Lord, baby Jesus, just relaxing, just chilling. (laughs) No problem. Right across the street from Atlas, struggling in his punishment to try to uphold the skies in some mythological scenario. Isn't that amazing? Hebrews chapter 1 describes Jesus in this way. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, this is a lot to take in about Jesus. I'd prefer to think of him just as a teacher, as a rabbi, even as a prophet. I can wrap my mind around that. I can even wrap my mind around Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, dealing with my sin and conquering death. I can go there. But to picture Jesus upholding the universe by the word of his power, it seems like a stretch. I'd rather just think of him as dying on the cross. Can we do that? 
Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it's almost like the author of Hebrews anticipates that question. In the third verse, it says this amazing statement. It says, after making purification for sins, that's a description of him on the cross, dying in our place, purifying us before the Father. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a reminder to us that as amazing and compelling and world-changing as his ministry on earth was, it was temporal. That after he died and rose from the dead, he went back to his rightful position in the universe, that is, on the throne, where he sits today and where he has been for all of eternity. It's amazing what he did here on earth. But now he, is, he didn't just disappear, he didn't just go away. He wasn't like the other figures of human history that we might find compelling. He sits upon the throne of the universe. This is the way he's presented in Hebrews chapter 1. And then right after these verses, the author goes into a description, a comparison between Jesus and angels. What's that all about? Why is there so much talk about angels in Hebrews chapter 1? It seems from the context that the people who received this letter, well, it seems like they maybe had an encounter with some angels, and they seem to be pretty interested in the angels. In fact, it seems that some of them might even have been worshiping angels. You know, I can't really blame them. I had an encounter with an angel one time. It was an amazing experience. Six years ago, we had just moved into this neighborhood. We moved into the old parsonage around the corner from here, what's next to what's now the Greenwich Center for Hope and Renewal. And we loved moving here. It was an awesome time, but it was also a little bit of a complicated time because we experienced spiritual realities when we moved into the parsonage. The kingdom of darkness, it was really scary. I did what any of you would have done. I called Chuck Davis and said, what (laughs) do I do? What have I gotten myself into? But there was a moment in those early weeks. Meanwhile, my three-and-a-half-year-old son, Riley, he was having visions, real visions. He had one vision one day, and he reported it to us, and we looked at each other just startled. And the very next morning, somebody appeared in my office, an adult. She said she was driving by the house the previous day, and she told me she had a vision to report to me. It was the very same one that my three-and-a-half-year-old had reported that day. Weird stuff was happening in those first couple weeks. Well, two weeks in, I was praying for my boy, Riley, as he slept one night, just praying for protection, because honestly, we were scared. And I was praying for my boy, and if you know that house, I just got emotional thinking about that. If you know our house, you know that the bedroom window that that used to be Riley's room, well, it, it overlooks the old sanctuary. If you look out Riley's old bedroom window, you look right into the sanctuary of the old church. And I was praying for him one night. I had my hand on his forehead, and I was looking out the window into the sanctuary, just praying. And after a while, I turned my back like this, and I had both my hands on him praying. And as soon as I turned my back, suddenly, it was very strange. It's like I had eyes in the back of my head, and I could see right into the sanctuary behind me, right through the sanctuary, actually, right onto the front stoop of that old chapel. And there, I beheld an angel. He was so big, he was about as tall as the sanctuary itself. And he wasn't just standing there like a regal statue. No, he was working. He was hunched down a little bit. I remember he had great big muscles, and with his left arm, he held a giant sword. And he was battling the kingdom of darkness off to his left side. I could see it. It was terrifying. 
But with his right arm, he had it extended out like this. And over his right arm was a giant, bright wing. And that wing extended over the sanctuary. It extended over my house. And by extension, it came all the way right over this property right here. If you look at it on the Google Maps, it's all in line. I could see it all right there. And everything under that wing was light and peaceful and harmonious and protected. But it all came at the cost of him working so hard to battle off the kingdom of darkness. I felt so much better having that vision. I felt so much safer in our home and in our ministry, knowing that we are protected as a church by a guardian angel. Now, I tell you that story not because I want you to remember that today, but because I want you to know that encountering an angel is profound. It's awesome. And the people who received this letter, they must have encountered angels too because they seem to have been worshiping them. But now let's read verses 4 through 7, thinking about how amazing angels are. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 4. Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. It's like the author knows that the people receiving this letter, they've encountered the awesomeness of angels. And he says to them, in effect... Pretty impressive, huh? Those angels. Now I want to talk about the one the angels worship. Angels are described as flames of fire and of winds. Those are pretty powerful, amazing things. But Jesus is the one who tells angels when to come and when to go. Jesus is the one who commands angels. You've encountered an angel? Great. Impressive. Now, let's bow down and worship the one they're worshiping. And he continues in verse 8 in this comparison between the angels and Jesus, and he says this, but of the Son, of Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's something really amazing about this. Do you hear the way God the Father refers to God the Son? He says, oh God. Sometimes we think about God the Son or God the Spirit being somehow lesser than God the Father, but the persons of the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity, they refer to each other as fully God. What's this saying? This is saying that Jesus, the Son of God, is actually God. God the Father views him that way, and so can we. Continuing now in verses, in verses 10 through 13, it says this, and... You, this is the Father speaking to the Son, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are a work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have 
no end. Jesus is eternal, it says in here. Verse 13, and to which of the angels has the Father ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now, this is actually borrowed language from Psalm 110, which the Hebrew people would have known very well. It was probably by this time a messianic psalm where people, when they read Psalm 110, thought of it as a description of the coming Messiah. And the author of Hebrews is saying, it's about him. It's about Jesus. And there's an image in this text that's very rich. You've heard it preached about here before. The father says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Every time I hear that mentioned, I think it's kind of funny, actually, to picture Jesus with Satan, the enemy, as a footstool under his feet. I've never really had an enemy. I had a time when there was somebody out to get me. There was somebody who kind of wanted to destroy me and my ministry. And I don't know if I was really having an enemy, but I know what that felt like. And it didn't feel very good. Maybe some of you have had that. You've had someone out to get you. Maybe you have had a real enemy. But look what it says here in this text. That the enemy of our souls, the one who's out to get us, the one who's out to destroy us, he's a footstool under Jesus' feet. Why is that interesting? Picture Jesus. He's, he's got some, his feet are tired. I need to rest. So he says, hey, Satan, get down on all fours. I got to rest my feet. Why is that important? It's important because the, the one that had so much power over us, the one that was the enemy of our souls, now he's subservient to Jesus Christ. Jesus died and rose again. He conquered the enemy. When he died, he absorbed all the sin of all of us, all of the world onto himself, and then he left it in the grave where it belongs, and then he rose again, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering the enemy of our souls. Now he gets to tell Satan what to do if he wants to. Is there any enemy in your life who has power over you, who gets up in your head, who wrecks your day, who makes you toss and turn on your mattress? The enemy of our souls is defeated by Jesus. He sits at the right hand of the majesty and he makes Satan a footstool for his feet. That's our Lord. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, I was kind of hoping for something more practical this fall from Stanwich Church. <laughs> Ten steps for your best life now. <laughs> what does this have to do with me? Well, let me tell you, there are some amazing implications of this truth in our lives. If this is true, if it's true what Hebrews chapter 1 says about Jesus, it changes our lives. Just like when my children looked out the observation deck from the One World Trade Center, suddenly they saw all the other buildings in context. If we see Jesus for who he is, if we climb up into his majesty, his supremacy, his wonder, suddenly the rest of the world around us is put into perspective. Two quick implications. I'll just leave you with these. One is a question. Who, who is Jesus to you? Is he a safe, distant teacher, life coach, check in with him every once in a while? 
Or is he the one the angels worship? A couple of weeks ago, there was a solar eclipse. I heard reports of people crying when they saw it, and they didn't really know why. Let's think about this for a second. The sun is 92 million miles from Earth. And if you stare at it, it'll burn your eyes. Yet some of us walk casually into an encounter with the creator of the sun. We think of God, we think of Jesus as the safe, distant thing we can keep in a box somewhere. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you know who you're messing with? (laughs) Not only that, he's conquered our greatest enemy. Now I want to just, for the second implication, I want to give away the ending of the book. Chapter 13, verse 6, this is the ending. The whole book leads up to this amazing truth. Think about the grandness, the majesty, the awesomeness, the victory of Jesus. And it says this in Hebrews 13, verse 6. Here's an implication you can take home with you today. So, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord, the one who upholds the universe, the one who's conquered sin and death and the enemy of our souls, he's my helper. He's with me. I shall not fear. What can man do to me? Now, the original audience of this book were helpless people. They were downtrodden. They were marginalized. They were cast out. This was a word of hope for them. We have to be careful when we hear this word not to become triumphalistic about it. Not to say we're right because Jesus is on our side. No. We can look to him, the author of our salvation, and say he helps me to be humble. He helps me to be strong. He helps me to have faith. And when I see him, when I see him for who he truly is, the rest of the world makes sense. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen.